Good morning, and welcome to Northminster. Wherever you're streaming from, whoever you are, this is a community that strives to celebrate and love you in all of your uniqueness, your light and your shadows. We're moving into what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel calls a sanctuary in time. We're in a strange season where space, gathering under the same roof, is not nearly as important to us as time. Whenever you're starting this service, even if it's not literally at the same time as the rest of us, you are entering into a common experience with a like-minded community dispersed across the city and the nation. As Heschel wrote, we are entering into a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to live in one accord. So, because we cannot mark our space, we encourage you to think of a way to mark this time. Claim a ritual. You can light a candle, make a cup of coffee, find a special blanket. Anything that lets you know that we are moving into this sacred sanctuary in time. Today, we will spend this time in word, story, and song exploring what it looks like to approach the news prayerfully, and then delving into what is arguably the most well-known passage of the Hebrew Scriptures, the 23rd Psalm. Now, as we begin today's liturgy, receive this blessing of our time together. People of God, awaken from your slumber and bring your fears into the presence of love. Hear the call of our shepherd. Allow her voice to lead from selfish ambition to the feast of grace. May the light of Christ shine into the hidden darkness of our lives and restore us for the service of the spirit of love. Come and let's worship God together. As we continue through this uncharted territory together, we're moving through a series of prayer practices informed by our faith tradition in conversation with the research of Yale professor of psychology, Dr. Lori Santos. Today we want to spend some time with a question many of us are dealing with. How can we stay informed without getting too anxious? This is a question Dr. Santos has responded to online, and it's one that many of us are wrestling with. Personally, after the first few weeks of all this, my regular daily routine of listening to the news was out the window for my own sanity. I found other ways to stay informed, but something about 
listening to the same broadcast in the same time and place I always had, like normal, while the things they were saying were so abnormal, so bizarre and unsettling, was just too much. At that time, I asked on social media, how many of you have changed your news habits? And more than anything else, I was blown away at how extreme the responses were. Some people said, I can't listen or watch at all. I'm taking a break from the news entirely. While others said, I can't stop. I can't imagine not being informed right now. I was reminded that we are all so different. We all process the world, our anxieties, and our hopes, and our griefs so differently. And there is no right answer. But there are ways we can all care for our spirits as we encounter the news. Because it's inevitable that we're going to encounter the headlines, whether we seek them out or not. And for many of us, it feels like a part of our ethical obligation as followers of Jesus to stay informed about our world and the needs in it. So how do we do that without allowing the news to pull us under? Dr. Santos recommends paying attention to your body, noticing how anxiety shows up physically for you. Is it a heaviness? Do you feel constricted? Or does your breathing get faster? The more mindful we can be of how our bodies are reacting, the better we can respond and know when we've seen or heard enough. It's also important to seek out good news, always, but especially right now. So try searching for the hashtag COVIDKindness or check out the latest installment of John Krasinski's YouTube show, Some Good News. I'm serious, this is my most sincere pastoral advice. Finding good news will require intentionality, but it's out there and our hearts need it. And finally, Set yourself some good boundaries. Pick a time each evening when you'll put your phone down and not pick it up again until morning. This connects back to our conversation last week about sleep. If we're reading anxiety-inducing news right up until bedtime, we are bound to have trouble sleeping. And this is also a practice of self-compassion. You can trust that you're not gonna miss much. The whole news cycle right now is really just one big story, and anything that's new tonight will still be new in the morning. So keep that perspective and give yourself some room to breathe. So as we enter a time of prayer this morning, with all of this in mind, I'm going to lead us through a practice of praying the news. I'm going to read some headlines from this week, and after each one, I'll provide a few seconds of silence as we hold each story just for a moment in our hearts. But 
rather than allowing those stories to sink in us like stones to weigh us down. Instead, I'll then invite us to bless and to release them with an affirmation of God's loving presence here with us in this moment, as well as throughout this world that God loves. Even when it's difficult to comprehend, even when it's hard to see the blue sky of God's love, we know that beyond the storms that surround us, beyond the news that confronts us, God's love still remains. So for each refrain, I'll begin with, the love of God is here now. And then I invite you to respond out loud as you're comfortable or quietly in your heart with, may the love of God inhabit the earth. Those words will be on the screen for you to read. Now, of course, we're recording a couple of days ahead of time, so if there are any major stories we've missed, you'll know why. And I trust that we can extend this blessing to them as well. Join me now in prayer for our world. Loving God, we bring to you the news of our world, and we pray for the courage to believe in the blessings we are about to offer. Hear us as we pray. Headline, a staggering toll, 30 million have filed for unemployment. 3.8 of those in the last week. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, a next generation coronavirus test raises hopes and concerns. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, quote, instead of coronavirus, the hunger will kill us. A global food crisis looms, doubling the number of people around the world facing acute hunger to 265 million by the end of this year. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, greenhouse gas emissions predicted to fall nearly 8%, the largest decrease ever. The drop is caused by weather patterns and COVID-19 shutdowns. The love of God is here now.
May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline. African Americans hit hardest by COVID-19, but most likely to say their faith has grown. Most U.S. Christians say their faith has been unaffected by the coronavirus, but those who attend historically black churches are the exception. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, Joe Biden denies Tara Reid's assault allegation, saying this never happened. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, quote, never seen anything like it. Cars line up for miles at food banks with millions flooding a charitable system that was never intended to handle a nationwide crisis. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Headline, high school seniors are making yearbooks on Instagram. The class of 2020 has given up prom, graduation, and other rights, but they are sharing memories and celebrating each other's achievements online. The love of God is here now. May the love of God inhabit the earth. Loving God, the news cycle will continue. So too will our need for your loving presence. Gracious God, we commit to holding one another in the belief that your love endures, even this, even now. Amen.
So I have a confession to make. This isn't my favorite psalm. I don't have anything against it. It's just that when people read the 23rd psalm, I don't really hear anything. It's been used so much, and I have so little connection to it that I just hear static. I know I'm not alone, but I also know our club is very small. But the thing is, I know that the reason it means so little to me is actually the same reason it means so much to others. I can't think of another passage of Scripture more familiar than Psalm 23. People all over the Western world, people who haven't been to church in decades, if ever, could probably recite a lot of it by heart. It's unrivaled in its demand in hospital rooms or at gravesides. It is its own liturgy in miniature for comfort in spaces of loneliness and fear. For some people, it's remarkably powerful. For me, I struggle. I think part of the problem is that I grew up thinking of the Bible as sort of one big ethereal book written by God on proverbial tablets of stone. In my mind, everything in it was flattened into this one genre, instructions from God to be decoded and applied. Of course, the truth is, it's not a book at all. It's a collection of textured and richly diverse material spanning every genre from fantasy to personal correspondence. And it's only by respecting those unique voices, by approaching those genres on their own terms, that we can really hear what they're trying to say. I've done a lot of healthy work learning how to do that, but for one reason or another, I still struggle with the Psalms. I was talking to my friend Sandra a few months ago when she asked me if I ever took time to read or write poetry. I said, no, not really. I I read a lot of Psalms and I write a lot of prayers, but I don't make much time for poetry. And she laughed at me and said, Zachary, What do you think is the difference? So this makes me wonder, if we approach it on its own terms, if we approach Psalm 23 with respect to the poetry that it is, what might we see? So whether you're like me and have trouble really hearing this psalm, or whether you find yourself turning to it in moments of vulnerability, I would like to honor it this morning by approaching it as we might approach any other poetry. Some of the most powerful approaches to poetry that I've heard once I escaped the classrooms where I was expected to take them apart and pin them down have happened when the poem is read once, followed by a guide walking through it, sharing what moved them. And then finally the poem is read once more to be heard afresh with new ears. In that spirit, let's approach this beloved psalm again this morning, creating space to hear God anew. A reading from Psalm 23. You are my shepherd, I shall not want. You let me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside restful waters. You restore my soul. You guide me on right paths for the sake of your name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, 
they comfort me. You spread a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house forever. This is one of our sacred psalms. Thanks be to God. It's probably not a surprise that the first thing that stood out to me as I read these were these three beautiful counter-narratives. In Scripture, I always try to be in tune with the cultural assumptions or narratives that the author is swimming in. That gives me eyes to see how the author might be using certain stories or language to push back against those narratives or disarm them. I saw that in three places as I read this psalm. First, I recognize this language of abundance in phrases like, I shall not want, or you spread a table for me, or my cup overflows. I have to imagine that back then, just like now, it was the default posture to think in terms of scarcity, that there's not enough, that I won't have what I need, that I've got to buy more and protect what I have so I can feel safe or so I can feel happy. But the poet's language here, in the poet's language here, there's the sense that in their relationship with God, there is, for the first time, enough. Rather than craving, they experience gratitude. The effect that this language has is that it retrains my eyes away from that bottomless sense of want to recognize that for which I'm grateful. There's a sense of ease and sufficiency in that. And then the second counter-narrative that struck out to me was this language of rest and restoration. The popular story, of course, is that you are only as valuable as what you can produce or what you can do. But then there are these phrases like, you let me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside restful waters. You restore my soul. And that language is disarming. It's even offensive to some part of my ego that wants to be working and producing, but instead, it invites me into this world of Sabbath rhythm. Reading this, I see myself for a moment through the eyes of the shepherd who loves and cares for me regardless of what I can accomplish or what I do or what I know. And so it gives a sense of importance to this posture of rest and play. And then finally, there's this counter-narrative that addresses fear and insecurity. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are words of courage and comfort. They don't evoke a high-stakes fight, flight, or shutdown situation, but one in which we are moving through fear while tapping into a source of peace somewhere deeper than what's going on out there. The poet is feasting on love and hope, even in the presence of their enemies, which rings true to me, especially right now. Reading this, I get the sense of surrender to a greater life, of being part of a greater body and an expression of a greater consciousness, and I find peace in that. 
I don't have to frantically wield my own rod and staff all the time because I'm part of something so much bigger than my own protection and comfort. Though I may die, Jesus said, I shall live. After those counter-narratives, there's something about this valley imagery that stands out to me. We live in a cultural moment that can no longer really distinguish the artist from their art. Their, the work is only as authentic as the life that it's coming from. The language seems to demonstrate that the poet is not just covering their eyes and ears and saying, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, or a privileged person who has all the money and comfort they need and so they feel like everything's going to be okay. In this language, rather, the poet reveals themselves as someone who has really been through the ringer, someone intimately familiar with suffering and with fear. They seem to know that feeling of walking through an experience that feels like they're constricted and claustrophobic, that they're surrounded by shadows, like walking through a valley. And to me, that gives this psalm credibility. We can believe that this is someone who has been through a desert, and in that has discovered the Spirit of God within the temple of their hearts, this presence from which they can't be separated, not even by death. I get the sense that the poet was familiar with the hospital room and the graveside, and so keeps people company there even today. And then I notice that in that last stanza, there's a shift from relating to God as shepherd to relating to God as the host of some kind of banquet that the poet has been invited into. You spread a table before me, my cup overflows. Only goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house forever. In these words, I can imagine the psalmist sitting down at a temple to partake in a sacrificial meal and being overwhelmed by this idea of feasting with God, of feasting on the abundance of God's presence in God's house. I imagine them recognizing that this communion is not limited to a specific religious ritual, but that they can dwell in God's house forever. That God's house is bigger than just the temple. And that if they can just stay with it, then they will forever bear the spiritual fruit of goodness and loving kindness, of joy and peace and patience, of faithfulness and gentleness. And finally, I noticed that this poem made me wonder. Specifically, it made me wonder how much this psalm had an impact on Jesus or the gospel writers. I wonder if John had it in mind when he described Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And I wonder if Matthew meant to echo its imagery when he wrote that Jesus instructed the people to sit down on the grass before he fed them with the abundance of loaves and fishes. And I wonder if when Mark told his story of Jesus crying out from Psalm 22 on the cross, if he counted on his audience knowing about the psalm that followed. I wonder if Jesus' imagination had been formed by this idea of the house of God in which the psalmist will dwell forever, and how much it influenced his idea of the kingdom of God, of God's alternate reality of love that is always at hand, waiting for us to enter and dwell within it.
I wonder if the disciples thought of this psalm as they reflected on their last Passover meal with Jesus, about how a table had been set in the presence of their enemies. I wonder if it stuck with them as they continued to break bread and find hope together in the midst of persecution. I wonder how much their story is still our story as we continue to walk through this valley of the shadow of death day by day, searching for the shepherd that will lead us into abundance and rest and comfort. I wonder how much we still long to commune with the one whose rod and staff are different from that of the world's and who will lead us to true peace. The one who spreads a banquet for us in the presence of our fears. I wonder how this poem invites us each deeper into this season of resurrection. A reading from Psalm 23. You are my shepherd, I shall not want. You let me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside restful waters. You restore my soul. You guide me on right paths for the sake of your name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You spread a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house forever. This is one of our sacred psalms. Thanks be to God.
around this far-reaching table, we tell the story of the night when Jesus took the bread, gave thanks for it, and broke it, just as he would be broken. Giving it to his friends, he said, take and eat, all of you. And in so doing, we remember that though we share in his suffering, we share also in his resurrection life. In so doing, we remember that pain and death never have the last word. And when the meal was over, he took a cup filled with wine and gave thanks for it. Giving it to his friends, he said, take and drink all of you. In so doing, we remember the new covenant sealed in his poured out life. In so doing, we remember the spirit of God, the spirit of love is always with us, no matter what. May simple acts, things like breaking bread and pouring wine, be for us windows into the great divine story of death and new life. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. We hope that this experience has opened you in some way to God's presence so that we can go forth from this space in the likeness of Christ. Just a few quick announcements before we disperse. Seasons of uncertainty of any kind are cause for grief and anxiety. This season of prolonged uncertainty, combined with the many losses we have each witnessed, from the profound to the mundane, have brought us each much grief, whether we recognize it as grief or not. In the spirit of holding one another in love, I invite you to join me for a three-part online retreat on Tuesday evenings beginning May 12th. We'll use a book of poetry, Jan Richardson's The Cure for Sorrow, a book of blessings for times of grief, as our guide.
You can see the church website or social media or call the office for more information. I hope you will join us as we make space for our grief in this season. Part of our work right now, now that the shockwave is subsiding, is leaning into the question of who we really are right now as a church. To contribute to that work, on Sunday the 17th, we'll be hosting a church-wide story listening event over Zoom, where we'll have opportunities to share and hear one another's stories of this community, of what we're proud of, of what we're sorry about, and of what we hope for the future. This will also be a great chance to connect with friends or even meet some new people in this moment of isolation. We'll send more information on that in the very near future. As always, you can check the newsletter for more information about what's going on in the life of the church. And don't forget to give. Remember, we are continuing to pay our choral scholars, our childcare workers, and staff. So your contributions are greatly appreciated. And so, people of God, receive now this benediction. May we move from this time with eyes open, our fears cradled and soothed by the presence of love. May we hear more clearly the call of our shepherd and allow her voice to lead us beyond ourselves and into the feast of grace. May the light of Christ, having been shown on the hidden darkness of our lives, have revealed even those places to be beloved. And having been restored, may we go out as agents of restoration in the service of the spirit of love. You are seen and you are loved. Go in peace.